this time to meditate by closing your eyes, letting out a big huge fart if you have to like I just did, just let that asshole air out, cause when you meditate you don't need, you don't got time to fart, you don't got time to pee. You don't got time to eat. You don't got time to drink. All you got to do at this point is breathe through the nostril area and nothing more than the nostril area. Perhaps you may be in a closed room environment some people cannot handle noise when they're meditating they just go they just they're just too distracted people can't visualize they have to keep their eyes closed if they do not keep their eyes closed then they're not doing very well in the meditation close your eyes perhaps dim the lights perhaps candles around your body try to make it nice and cozy pillow above you or below you as you sit cross-legged on it you know perhaps it's a pretty nice size pillow and then you begin the process of just breathing in and breathing out as much as you can both ways and if you are thinking about anything while you're breathing through your nostril area, aside from that nostril area, you are doing it all wrong, ladies and gentlemen, and the other things in the universe. So do it right. If you start wandering, sensation, sensation arises, of course. You start thinking about your day while you're breathing. Oh, that's, that's all wrong. You got to go back to that nostril area. Breathe in. And breathe it out through your nose, not through your mouth. Don't do it. Fuck those people who say otherwise. I love for the masters, the ancients, those bitches that know what's up. And trust me, I know what's up. Yeah, baby, let's get it on. So if you're not thinking about the nostril area while you're breathing, deep breaths, long, slow, deep breaths. Breathe in as much as you can. Breathe out as much as you can. And vice versa. Just repeat the process. Thinking about your nostril area. Thinking about the breathing in. Thinking about the breathing out. That's all you're thinking about through this process. We're going to do it for about, let me check it out. Let me check it out. Uh, we're going to do about half hour right now. Oh, no. Not right now. We're going to do it in about 45 seconds from right now. Okay, cool. So, you guys get ready. You guys go get your pillows. or You guys come back to this broadcast. This is a live session, but um, this live, this broadcast will be uh, repetitive, so you get to start over. So, if you guys are ready, uh, continue. If you're not, go get ready. Pause it. Uh, go get ready. Uh, pillow, uh, perhaps a, you know, poop and pee and, you know, get all that shit out. Maybe you need it. No, don't eat, don't eat, don't eat, don't drink. Perhaps eating and drinking should be prohibited three hours prior to meditation. 
best time to do it is right when you wake up. Drink a glass of water as you wake up and enjoy that water flow. Don't drink nothing else and then meditate. That would be the best. And perhaps before bedtime or half midday uh, between lunch area. And if people see you around your lunch area meditating, who gives a shite? And if they're trying to distract you, you know, just focus on the nostril area. You'll be good. You'll be masters in no time, let me tell you. Right, here we go. So get down and dirty. We're going to do it right now. On the brain. Church, baby. Meditation session. How to meditate.
And just like that, ladies and gentlemen, the problem was solved. Let's go to the next commercial break and we'll come right back, shall we? Bray was Radio Church, baby.
Sorry, guys. Fucked it up. There we go.
This is a very significant move. And Buffett is not the only one going all in on this. On the 26th of April 1986, it was decided at Chernobyl to take advantage of reactor number four's downtime by carrying out a safety test on an emergency core cooling feature. At 1.24 in the morning, an engineer recorded in his diary that the protective system wasn't working. At the same moment, a huge and catastrophic surge in power caused two explosions. As fires raged, the core of reactor number four was destroyed. A huge cloud rose into the sky, spreading large amounts of radioactive fuel and materials into the atmosphere. Sweden was the first foreign country to find out about the accident when it detected unusual levels of radioactivity coming from the east two days later. Ukrainian authorities tried to hide the disaster, which had by that time claimed only two lives when one employee was killed instantly and another died in hospital several hours later. Firefighters who rushed in to put out the blaze weren't properly equipped and suffered radiation poisoning. Attempts were made to cool the reactor by dropping 4,000 tons of lead and sandbags onto the site. Forty-eight thousand people living in Pripyat were also victims of the ineptitude and secrecy of the authorities. The town was only three kilometers away from Chernobyl. Evacuation from Pripyat began a full day and a half after the explosion. Investigations into the accident at Chernobyl revealed both procedural and design errors at the nuclear facility. Do you want to know the number one way to stop socialism? To make sure that your God-given constitutional rights are not trampled on? Well, I'm going to tell you how. My name is Jason Hansen. I'm a former CIA officer, and you might have seen me on Shark Tank, the NBC Today Show, or Fox News. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author. And right now, I want to show you how to protect and preserve our liberties by giving you a free copy of my book called Sleeper Cell Secrets of Spies and Our Founding Fathers. This book reveals little-known tradecraft that will preserve our liberties, that will preserve our Constitution, that will make sure the socialists and liberals don't take over. So click below right now, claim your free copy of this book. If you love freedom, make sure and grab it now before it's too late. seconds. 200 seconds next to it would lead to a relatively quick death, which is better than many alternatives. Spend just 30 seconds near it, and dizziness and fatigue would find you a week later. Two minutes of exposure, and your cells would soon begin to hemorrhage. Four minutes, vomiting, diarrhea, fever. 200 seconds in its presence, and you would have just days to live. By the fall of 1986, emergency crews fighting to contain the nuclear disaster at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant made it into the basement. 
They turned a corner into a steam corridor beneath failed reactor number four and found not steam, but black lava that had oozed out of the core, eaten through meters of concrete, and settled on the floor. The largest and most famous formation in the corridor was a two-ton wrinkled mass that their radiation sensors firmly told them not to approach. With cameras pushed in from around a corner, the workers documented the dimly lit mass. According to readings taken at the time, the still hot portion of the molten reactor core was putting out enough radiation to give anyone within three feet of it a lethal dose in just 200 seconds. This is the true story of the elephant's foot. During a routine test on April 26, 1986, reactor number four at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant experienced a power surge born of poor reactor design and human error, which triggered an emergency shutdown. The shutdown did not work. The attempt to manage the surge in power and alarming increase in the core's temperature caused an even larger power surge of 12,000%. Control rods that are used to manage core temperature were inserted too late. A gross safety violation, there weren't even enough control rods in the core to begin with. Their insertion into the increasingly hot core caused the rods themselves to crack and fracture, locking them in place. Heat and power output continued to rise until the water that was used to cool the entire reactor began to vaporize, generating massive amounts of pressure. The first explosion from the steam inside the reactor was large enough to send a 4 million pound lid of the reactor assembly through the roof of the building. The reactor now fatally damaged, the remaining cooling water from broken channels seeped into the reactor as well, flashing directly into steam as it touched the soon-to-be glowing-hot nuclear fuel rods. A second, even more massive explosion followed shortly after the first, belching core material into the air, spreading fire and radioactive ash. It is estimated that the fires that rage in Reactor 4 spread 400 times more radiation than the nuclear blast that wiped Hiroshima off the map. Over 160,000 square kilometers of Russia and Europe were eventually contaminated. With a glowing heart no longer shielded by tons of steel and concrete, the core could no longer be cooled. It began to melt. When you hear about a nuclear reactor melting down, it's not simply illustrative language. Without proper cooling, radioactive materials used as fuel get hotter and hotter due to their close proximity and continuous emission of high-energy particles. Nuclear fuel literally heats itself up until it melts, turning into what is arguably the most dangerous substance on Earth. If you wanted to know what the most dangerous material ever created was, corium would be a good answer. At Chernobyl, the loss of coolant caused a meltdown of the uranium fuel, up to a third of which was scattered into the atmosphere. Estimates vary. But up to 160,000 kilograms of uranium, radioactive and many thousands of degrees, melted and flowed into the bottom of the reactor vessel. Eight days later, seconds. 200 seconds next to it would lead to a relatively quick death, which is better than many alternatives. Spend just 30 seconds near it, and dizziness and fatigue would find you a week later, 
Two minutes of exposure, and your cells would soon begin to hemorrhage. Four minutes, vomiting, diarrhea, fever. 200 seconds in its presence, and you would have just days to live. By the fall of 1986, emergency crews fighting to contain the nuclear disaster at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant made it into the basement. They turned a corner into a steam corridor beneath failed reactor number four and found not steam, but black lava that had oozed out of the core, eaten through meters of concrete, and settled on the floor. The largest and most famous formation in the corridor was a two-ton wrinkled mass that their radiation sensors firmly told them not to approach. With cameras pushed in from around a corner, the workers documented the dimly lit mass. According to readings taken at the time, the still hot portion of the molten reactor core was putting out enough radiation to give anyone within three feet of it a lethal dose in just 200 seconds. This is the true story of the elephant's foot. During a routine test on April 26, 1986, reactor number four at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant experienced a power surge born of poor reactor design and human error, which triggered an emergency shutdown. The shutdown did not work. The attempt to manage the surge in power and alarming increase in the core's temperature caused an even larger power surge of 12,000%. Control rods that are used to manage core temperature were inserted too late a gross safety violation, there weren't even enough control rods in the core to begin with. Their insertion into the increasingly hot core caused the rods themselves to crack and fracture, locking them in place. Heat and power output continued to rise until the water that was used to cool the entire reactor began to vaporize, generating massive amounts of pressure. The first explosion from the steam inside the reactor was large enough to send a four million pound lid of the reactor assembly through the roof of the building. The reactor now fatally damaged, the remaining cooling water from broken channels seeped into the reactor as well, flashing directly into steam as it touched the soon-to-be glowing hot nuclear fuel rods. A second, even more massive explosion followed shortly after the first, belching core material into the air, spreading fire and radioactive ash. It is estimated that the fires that rage in Reactor 4 spread 400 times more radiation than the nuclear blast that wiped Hiroshima off the map. Over 160,000 square kilometers of Russia and Europe were eventually contaminated. With a glowing heart no longer shielded by tons of steel and concrete, the core could no longer be cooled. It began to melt. When you hear about a nuclear reactor melting down, it's not simply illustrative language. Without proper cooling, radioactive materials used as fuel get hotter and hotter due to their close proximity and continuous emission of high-energy particles. Nuclear fuel literally heats itself up until it melts, turning into what is arguably the most dangerous substance on Earth. If you wanted to know what the most dangerous material ever created was, Corium would be a good answer. At Chernobyl, the loss of coolant caused a meltdown of the uranium fuel, up to a third of which was scattered into the atmosphere. Estimates vary. But up to 160,000 kilograms of uranium, radioactive and many thousands of degrees, melted and flowed into the bottom of the reactor vessel. Eight days later, the flow had melted through the reactor's lower shield. 
oozing through basement pipes, pooling in steam corridors, and eating through two meters of steel and concrete, the radioactive lava flow from reactor number four eventually cooled enough to solidify in the basement. Thousands of kilograms of molten uranium oxide, sand, metal, silica glass, and other materials, a composite monstrosity dubbed Corium. In addition to being the world's arguably most dangerous material, it might be also the rarest artificial material. Corium is only formed in a nuclear meltdown. Corium has only been created accidentally five times. Once in the Three Mile Island reactor in Pennsylvania in 1979, once at Chernobyl, and three separate times during the much more recent Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. Now I say accidentally created because there are scientists and engineers who study corium and create it on purpose. For example, this is a video of molten uranium oxide, like what would have been found beneath Chernobyl, bubbling and boiling at around 2000 degrees Celsius at Argonne National Laboratory. Remember, this heat is self-generated. All by itself, corium can get half as hot as the surface of the sun. Corium is never pure nuclear fuel. Rather, it's a radioactive Frankenstein of fuel rods, fission products, the control rods in the core, concrete from the floors, steel from the surrounding structures, and the chemicals created when blazing uranium reacts with air, water, and steam. Here you can see a simulation of what corium actually does, easily disintegrating concrete as it escapes confinement. In the lab, Corium is still terrifying, but controlled and mesmerizing in a way that lava and its destructive capabilities can often be. It's almost beautiful. At Chernobyl, there was no such beauty. After the corium was done flowing, the result was an ominous collection of stalactites, stalagmites, steam valves clogged with hardened radioactive lava and the large gray mass that would later be dubbed the elephant's foot. The elephant's foot could be the most dangerous piece of waste in the world. Of the five accidental corium creations, only Chernobyl's has escaped confinement. Radioactive atoms are unstable atoms. While something like hydrogen is just fine with a nucleus consisting of a single proton, radioactive elements like uranium, the most common isotope of which contains 92 protons and 146 neutrons, are not so happy. Photons, electrons, protons, and neutrons are randomly ejected from the nuclei of these large atoms, transforming them until something like plutonium degrades over time into a stable element like lead. Particles emitted from radioactive atoms are a form of ionizing radiation. That is, they have enough energy to rip apart the atoms and molecules they crash into, changing how they interact with other atoms and molecules, ionizing them. Non-ionizing radiation, on the other hand, like the kind emitted by your cell phone, does not have enough energy to break atomic bonds. Ionizing radiation, then, directly causes the terrible symptoms of radiation sickness by simply smashing through enough molecular machinery in your body. DNA can be repaired, new cells can be generated, but with enough nanoscopic damage, cells start to function irregularly or die outright, leading to cancer or organ failure, respectively. Because of the way radiation damages human cells by knocking atoms and molecules out of place, death by radiation is a, relatively speaking, slow one. Fever, nausea, confusion, cancer, organ failure. Up to a point, over time, treatment does help, but extremely high doses of radiation, like the kind that would be delivered by close contact with the elephant's foot, are always a death sentence.
The more radiation released from a mass of atoms, the more dangerous it is. Reports from Chernobyl estimate that immediately after formation, the elephant's foot was emitting nearly 10,000 rentgens per hour. It only takes about one-tenth of that rate to kill a person. A single hour next to the elephant's foot would expose you to the equivalent of over four and a half million chest x-rays all at once. Shortly after the Chernobyl meltdown, nearly 600,000 workers descended on the site to help contain the escaping radiation. Knowingly or not, many of these workers were making the greatest sacrifice. 134 were hospitalized with acute radiation syndrome. 28 of them died within months following the incident, and current estimates put the total number of deaths from related cancers due to the contamination across Russia and Europe somewhere between 9 and 16,000. After the nuclear fires at Chernobyl were finally controlled, a feat which took nine full days, workers scrambled to contain the invisible dangers of the failed core. In May of 1986, construction began on the sarcophagus, a gigantic concrete enclosure built to seal off the radiation from the outside world. But the ruins would never be entirely contained, even after the installation of a much larger tomb in 2016. The Chernobyl sarcophagus is outfitted with access points, allowing researchers to observe the core and workers to enter. In December of 1986, researchers discovered the elephant's foot. It was a couple of meters across, over 4,000 kilograms, and put out enough radiation to prevent anyone from getting near it for more than just a few seconds. But despite the dangers, we have pictures like this one of the deadly mass. How? Well, from a safe distance, workers, or liquidators as they were called, rigged up a crude wheeled camera contraption and pushed it slowly and from around a corner towards the elephant's foot. This photo, almost never seen in discussions of the elephant's foot, was taken in 1990, four years after the incident. The slide the photo is on was given to a Dr. Bill Zoller at the University of Washington's Department of Chemistry. The caption reads, quote, this is a slide I obtained from the Russians. It shows what is called the elephant's foot. The Russians obtained this picture by sending a man down there with a camera. He took one picture and then came back up. I was told that he died from the radiation he had received. This picture cost a man his life. End quote. When this photo of the elephant's foot was taken, 10 years after the disaster, the elephant's foot was only emitting one-tenth of the radiation it once had been. Still, merely 500 seconds of exposure at this level would bring on mild radiation sickness, and a little over an hour of exposure would be fatal. Another photo, a timed selfie by Russian nuclear inspector Artur Korneyev, is arguably the most famous and most disturbing photo of the elephant's foot. According to an investigation by Atlas Obscura, the ghostly image of Artur is likely not due to anything spooky, just the shutter speed, as is the time-lapse-like streak from the flashlight. But the graininess, the grittiness you see in the photo, that's from the radiation. Over time, the elephant's foot has decomposed. It has puffed dust while its surface cracked. But more than 30 years later, it is still quite dangerous. In 2001, levels were measured that would give you a lethal dose of radiation in under 60 minutes. Extrapolating from how radiation sources degrade over time, today that deadly limit is probably a few hours. And today, the elephant's foot, 
once nuclear lava eating through the corpse of Chernobyl is still hotter than the surrounding air temperature and environment thanks to the radioactive heat pulsing inside of it. Born of human error, continually generating heat in the basement of a failed power plant, the elephant's foot is still melting into the base of Chernobyl, albeit very slowly. If it hits groundwater, scientists still worry that it could trigger another explosion like the one that killed the core and lifted four million pounds like it was a paperweight, or it could leach radioactive material into the water that nearby residents drink. Long after bleeding from the core, this unique piece of waste continues to be a terrifying testament to the potential dangers of nuclear power, even though nuclear power as a whole is extremely safe. Until it is finally removed, if it ever is, the elephant's foot will be there for centuries, sitting in the dark basement of a concrete and steel sarcophagus, a symbol of one of humankind's most powerful tools gone wrong. Until next time. Thank you so much to the Very Nerdy staff at the facility for their direct and substantial support in the creation of this here video. Today especially, I want to recognize research assistant Jenny Dowd and visiting scholar Patricio Norman If you want to join the staff, if you want to drape on a silky white lab coat, talk every day with me on Discord, get behind the scenes stuff, and get episodes early, you can go to patreon.com slash kylehill and join the facility staff today. And hey, if you support us just enough, you get your name on ARIA here each and every week. And as you can see, there's literally hundreds of you. So I have no idea how I'm going to pass the... T I um, kind of have to take responsibility for this one. So I know it's going to sound like I'm tooting my own horn or reading into it, but uh, my essay in 2013 about the elephant's foot on Nautilus got millions and millions and millions of views, the most read thing they ever had on their website. And I believe, looking to Google search results and trends, that bringing the elephant's foot back into public consciousness was kind of my doing. So I'm part of the legacy too, which is fine. Hey, look at us. Thanks for watching. Starting to make you twitch Good thing this coffee is always smooth and rich The best part of waking up In 1946, a P-239 plutonium core scheduled for detonation by nuclear bomb was harmlessly melted down and reintegrated into the United States' nuclear stockpot. That was the end of a 14-pound metallic sphere that had killed two scientists not 11 months before. This is the true story of the Demon Corps. The spheres of atomic material that had obliterated the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki would have easily fit in your hand, and they were light enough to carry. Because of the extreme levels of radiation coming from them, the cores were carried around in secure containers, but curious physicists reported that the cores were disturbingly warm to the touch. Both the Little Boy and Fat Man nuclear bombs used subcritical masses of uranium and plutonium respectively, meaning that no self-sustaining nuclear reaction would be possible with the spheres alone, and the nickel plating that covered them would prevent most of the escaping radiation from harming you. The real harm 
comes later. The terrible explosions that Little Boy and Fat Man are famous for only happen when a nuclear core goes critical, using directed conventional explosives to artificially induce a critical mass. This meant literally compressing a plutonium or uranium sphere into a much smaller volume with explosions. Now, neutrons emitted from natural radioactivity would be much more likely to go on and impact other atoms before escaping, leading to a chain reaction of exponentially more and more atoms releasing tremendous energy. At the heart of an atomic blast is a radioactive core filled with atoms poised like rat traps. All the bomb itself does is force one of those traps to snap. The so-called Demon Core was the third core of fissionable nuclear material made during the World War II era. It was also supposed to be dropped on Japan, but after the Empire's prompt surrender, following the obliteration of Nagasaki, the core had no immediate military use. Instead, a physicist working at the Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico after the war decided to use the remaining core to figure out just what it takes to make a core like this go critical. When Otto Robert Frisch first arrived in the United States, he was placed at Los Alamos to study neutron multiplication in uranium and plutonium. These elements naturally radiate neutrons in the process of nuclear decay, and as we said, if there is enough of the radioactive element close enough together, these neutrons can go on to cause the rat trap style reaction as neutrons slam more neutrons free from other atoms. However, there is another way to force criticality other than just having a giant sphere of plutonium which would be hard to make. It turns out that if you use a very thick material to reflect neutrons coming out of the material back upon itself like a mirror would, a self-sustaining reaction can occur with substantially less plutonium or uranium. Even though an explosion might not happen after criticality is reached in all cases, a deadly blast of radiation certainly could. And that's exactly what happened. By 1944, Frisch was leading the critical assembly group at Los Alamos and started a dangerous series of near-criticality testing. The physicists in the group wanted to use neutron reflective materials around spheres of plutonium and uranium to see just how close they could get to going critical without explosives and without going over the edge. Commenting on the inherent risk of experiments of this kind, legendary physicist Richard Feynman reportedly said that the experiments were like, quote, tickling the tail of a sleeping dragon, end quote. But even with the very real possibility of being roasted alive by the radioactive fire of a failed criticality test, the tickling the dragon's tail experiments continued. Within two years, neutron reflection experiments on the demon core claimed the lives of two scientists, Harry K. Dogley Jr. and Louis Slotin, in almost the exact same way. On August 21st, 1945, Harry K. Doglian Jr. was conducting a criticality experiment with the Demon Core. He was placing tungsten carbide bricks around the mass of plutonium to see how many bricks and in what orientation it would take to reflect enough neutrons to cause the core to go critical. That afternoon, using a Geiger counter-like device to measure the radiation coming off of the plutonium, he got close enough to criticality that he decided to end the experiment. Now, this result should have been worth just a few graphite streaks in a notebook and maybe a beer at the local bar with the other physicists, but Doglian was curious. Later that night, he returned, alone, to his assembly for another test. 
Like the tests before, Doglian created an orientation of bricks that his measuring device told him was nearly critical. As he was placing one last brick, the measuring device indicated that the core would go critical if he continued on the assembly. The dragon would wake up. So cautiously, he began removing the final brick, and then he dropped it. The moment the brick hit the assembly, the demon core instantly went supercritical. According to Doglian, there was a blast of blue light and a wave of heat. Doglian reacted quickly, though, and used his right hand to knock the drop brick all the way to the floor. In those fractions of a second, Harry had received a fatal dose of radiation. In fact, he had endured what was likely the highest acute dose of radiation of any human in history. 25 days later, Doglian fell into a coma and died from organ failure, owing to severe radiation poisoning. This photo, taken nine days after the accident by medical staff, is of the hand that Harry had used to stop the demon core. He was 24. Harry wasn't completely alone and experimenting in the lab that night. A security guard, Private Robert J. Hemmerly, was also sitting at his desk next to Doglian reading his newspaper. Hemmerly died 33 years after Doglian Jr. from what is now considered to be radiation-caused leukemia. He was 29 and the father of two at the time of exposure. Harry K. Doglian Jr. was the first official fatality from a criticality accident and the first American casualty of the atomic age. He had arranged to have his body donated to science after his inevitable end so that scientists could study the effects of radiation exposure on the human body. During the 25 days after his fatal mistake, Doglian's colleague, Louis Slaughton, spent many hours at his bedside, comforting the 24-year-old as radiation poisoning slowly claimed him. Exactly seven months later, in the same hospital, Louis Slaughton would suffer the exact same fate. In 1936, a brilliant Polish doctor discovered what she believed to be the biggest biblical breakthrough of the last 2,000 years. A secret that if rumors were true, could heal soldiers from serious wounds, make them think faster, fight off disease and stay healthy under stressful circumstances, and by removing pain and discomfort, make them virtually invincible in battle. It's no wonder that Dr. Benet's apparent biblical discovery caught the eye of a very evil man. You see, Adolf Hitler knew war was coming, and he was hungry for any advantage that he could get his hands on, which, by the way, is the real reason Hitler spent years searching for lost relics, including the Holy Grail and the Ark of the Covenant. And recently declassified reports reveal that in 1939, through his vast spy network, Hitler became aware of Dr. Benet's discovery. Within a few months of hearing about her research, he had invaded Poland and World War II had begun. Click the button you see now to discover the healing secret that Hitler so desperately tried to get his hands on. By 1946, physicist Louis Slotten had taken over the critical assembly group from Frisch. Though the criticality experiments were moved from the Omega site at Los Alamos to the Palajito laboratory, the dangerous nature of the experiments did not change. In addition to Feynman's continued warnings, physicist Enrico Fermi said that, quote, keep doing that experiment that way, and you'll be dead within a year. But Louis Slotten wasn't worried, and the experiments continued. On May 21st, 1946, Slotten was conducting another criticality experiment with the Demon Corps. 
This time, though, instead of using tungsten bricks, Slotin was testing the critical point of the core by placing it inside two half-spheres made of beryllium and lowering those halves until there was just a sliver of space before the sphere was complete. If the core was completely enclosed, the reflection of neutrons would be total, and the dragon would wake again. The local expert among experts, Slotin was reportedly brash in his experimental protocols. In his signature pair of blue jeans and cowboy boots, Slotin would perform the criticality tests without the fail-safe spacers that would sit on the half-spheres and keep it from ever completely closing. Instead, he would put his bare hand on the top half-sphere and attempt to lower it using only the blade of a flathead screwdriver. That way, he could get much closer to criticality and Slotin had successfully completed this experiment dozens of times. The afternoon of the accident, Louis Slotin was conducting the same screwdriver experiment as seven other colleagues recorded and watched. It was just like the test before, but for whatever reason, this time, the screwdriver slipped. At the moment the spheres touched, the demon core went prompt critical. The reflected neutrons coming from the plutonium inside the sphere instantly initiated supercriticality. Like the Doglian accident, there was a flash of blue light and a wave of the dragon's heat before Slotin could flip the top half sphere off of the assembly. Naturally, the seven other scientists in the room ran out as fast as they could as the accident occurred, but Slotin shouted them all to get back and tossed them a stick of chalk. He told them each to mark down precisely where they were standing. By establishing their positions relative to the demon core, Slotin would be able to calculate just how much radiation each person had just absorbed, and how much their lives had just been shortened. According to physicist Raymer Schreiber, who was present in the room with Slotin that day, Slotin's first words immediately after the incident were, quote, well, that does it. Louis Slotin died of severe radiation poisoning nine days later at the age of 35. He died in the same hospital as Harry Doglian Jr. on another Tuesday the 21st as a result of the same accident with the same hunk of radioactive material. They even were cared for by the same nurse. The demonstration that day was supposed to be the final demonstration with the core before it was used in a test detonation and it was. In those few moments, Louis Slotin had been exposed to over 1,000 rads of radiation from the neutrons and gamma rays blasting out of the demon core. This is possibly the highest dose of radiation any human has ever taken. As a comparison, 1,000 meters from ground zero in Hiroshima, the neutron radiation was measured as less than half of what Slotin had absorbed in those fractions of a second. Quiz. What's the fastest way to raise your credit score? Is it A, pay your bills on time, B, hire a credit repair? Since 1945, over 60 criticality accidents have been recorded, leading to at least 21 deaths in facilities. Slotin had absorbed in those fractions of a second. Since 1945, over 60 criticality accidents have been recorded, 
leading to at least 21 deaths in facilities and labs all around the world. The flash of blue light that so often accompanies these incidents is an indication of the invisible radiation being released. As high-energy particles crash through the air, like these particles exiting a cyclotron, they excite the air molecules. The only way for these molecules to return to a lower energy state is to release some radiation of their own, photons of light. But while gases can absorb and re-emit the energy imparted to it by nuclear material, human bodies cannot. Instead, particles and gamma rays flying out of the nuclear cores rip electrons from the molecules that make you up and smash your cellular machinery beyond repair. When enough molecular damage is done, radiation sickness can manifest itself as everything from vomiting and diarrhea to blisters, inflammation, impaired cognition, widespread organ failure, confusion, nausea, high fever, dizziness. Five weeks later, on July 1st, 1946, a different nuclear core was destroyed in a 23-kiloton air-deployed nuclear weapon over Bikini Atoll. It was supposed to be the end of the Demon Core. Instead, the Demon Core was melted down and redistributed throughout the rest of the United States stockpile, effectively getting a brand new half-life. Until next time. Story time with Kyle's a little serious, huh? Thank you so much to the very nerdy staff at the facility for their direct and substantial support in the creation of this here video. Today, especially, I want to recognize research assistant Roy Don Houghton, who's definitely not a Pokemon, and visiting scholar Max Concurrent. Oh, maximum at the same time is what your parents should have named you. If you want to join the facility, if you want to get a lab coat, get on the staff, you want to talk to me in our Discord, give me episode ideas, get episodes early. It's time to take control of your journey towards chess mastery. Magnus Carlsen introduces Chessable, the definitive solution for studying chess. Move Trainer uses the science of spaced repetition to identify your strengths and eliminate your weaknesses. There's no need to set up a board to remember which page you're on or keep track of all the moves you miss. Move Trainer empowers you to go from the opening to the end game with confidence. It's a seamless, effective, and fun way to study chess. Choose from one of the largest online chess libraries in the world, with hundreds of titles ranging from classic books through to our exclusive chessable courses, including over 100 free courses. Get expert insights from International Master John Bartholomew, Grandmaster Sam Shankland, International Master Christoph Silecki, Grandmaster Simon Williams, World Champion Magnus Carlsen, and hundreds of other instructors. In the field of computer engineering, the name Deep Blue is afforded reverence. It will sometimes be invoked when discussing the rise of machine learning and AI, though how it's related to these fields is often vague, inaccurate, or imprecise. It also is used as a challenge to anthropocentrism and to express fears of machines and computers advancing beyond human capabilities, especially in creative work. And it is sometimes related to the anxieties associated with human obsolescence in similarly unspecified ways. Misunderstandings about the nature of Deep Blue, its construction, and its storied history are common. So what was Deep Blue?
1949, the American electrical engineer Claude E. Shannon submitted a paper to the scientific journal Philosophical Magazine. Uh, I fucking burped. We got about 20 more minutes, so I'm gonna play some uh, Cannibal Anthem, the album by Wump Scud, Jesus Antichrist. Let's do it. On church.
I am in submission. Made I am in succession. Made by Made by Made by Made by Made by Made Made, I'm a 